the way I conceived of this weekend was that tonight we would talk about issues of uh, we, tonight we would deal with homosexuality, basically, and then tomorrow morning we'll talk about transgenderism, <clears throat> and then we're going to talk about headship right after that. That's kind of the lay of the land. And so this, this second talk gets us actually a little bit more deeper in the weeds, and so I'm hoping that you can hang in here with me. Um, I had somebody in the hallway just ask me if I was going to talk about the Revoice Conference. Did anybody hear about that? Maybe a few of you have. So for those of you who have heard of the Revoice Conference, it really caused a, quite a controversy among evangelicals, especially within the, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, over the summer. And, um, you know, I don't know what happened here, but it seemed like for some reason that controversy really crystallized and brought to the popular attention uh, a, dis- a debate that's been going on for a number of years. And uh, the debate, the theological debate, is what I'm hoping to unpack a little piece of, actually, uh, here this evening. So uh, the, the name of uh, th- this next uh, session, we're going to be talking, we're going to try to an- ask and answer the question, is same-sex attraction sinful? Is same-sex attraction sinful? We might even ask uh, you could maybe even rephrase the question as, is same-sex orient, is homosexual orientation sinful? So that's the question that I want to ask and answer in this session. And I want us to all think about this carefully together, biblically, because this is actually an issue that's really kind of confronting us as, as evangelicals right now. And it's an issue that's confronting us from within our, our own, own ranks. Now, I realize that even to ask the question, is same-sex attraction sinful, it raises eyebrows for some folks. In fact, I found that to raise that issue in those terms arouses the suspicions of people on both sides of the larger cultural debate over the ethics of homosexuality. On one side, you have those who view sexual orientation as an unchosen, immutable attribute that has no more moral dimension to it than skin color or eye color. And so for them, same-sex orientation is simply another element of human diversity to be acknowledged and celebrated and certainly not to be stigmatized. And so for those who hold that view, we might as well be asking, is it sinful to have brown hair? For them, it's offensive and even uncouth even to ask a question if it's sinful to have a characteristic that you're just born with. On the other side... You have those who believe that homosexuality is a choice and that even to grant the existence of something called a sexual orientation that you're born with is to concede too much to the sexual revolutionaries. And so on that view, if you grant that certain people are born with same-sex attractions or even have it for as long as they could remember, then you can't hold someone responsible for acting on those attractions. So for some Christians, the category of sexual orientation would overturn the logic of the Bible's clear prohibition on same-sex behavior that we just saw in the last session. So even to ask the question, is same-sex attraction sinful, it raises the hackles of both sides uh, of this debate. But I would also want to acknowledge the existence of another group who 
might have a negative response to the question, is same-sex attraction sinful? And this is, this is the group that I think is on the ascent right now in, in conservative circles, of, even within the evangelical movement. And I, I mentioned Revoice a second ago, but there are some voices within that organization that, that would have the objections that I'm about to, to raise here. Today you will find many evangelicals willing to grant the distinction between same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior. And among those who do, they're very clear that Scripture treats same-sex behavior as sinful. But many of them are reluctant to say that same-sex attraction itself is sinful. They're rightly concerned about placing an undue burden of guilt upon Christians who are chaste in their behavior, but who nevertheless experience these same-sex attractions. And so they don't want these dear brothers and sisters to... Um, you know, have undue guilt heaped upon them. They want them to struggle faithfully and practice chastity, but they, they sense uh, for those brothers and sisters who continue to experience same-sex attraction, but they're trying to abstain from the, the behavior, they sense that they cannot eliminate same-sex attractions that well up within them spontaneously and uninvited. And so it seems cruel and unusual to call their unchosen and unwanted attractions sinful. To call those attractions sinful while they are otherwise living a life of faithfulness and chastity seems to confuse temptation with sin. That's what they would argue. It seems to load these brothers and sisters up with burdens too heavy to bear. No one wants to sin against them and fall under the censure of Jesus that he laid against the scribes and the Pharisees when he said they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. And if you watched any of the sessions at the Revoice Conference over the summer, you heard some of that. <clears throat> they said that people who hold to the perspective I'm about to share with you are just heaping undue guilt upon Christians who experience same-sex attraction, but they're trying to remain chaste in their behavior. So I understand that the question that, as I have posed it, immediately puts friends and foes of the gospel on their guard. But I still think it's a question that evangelical Christians can't dodge. And it's a question that many evangelicals have not yet thought their way through to biblical clarity. And because of that, we've got a lot of confusion out there in the pews about how to minister to people, how to pastor people who are dealing with these things. And so... For this reason, we have a great need to let the Bible's message determine what we think about these categories. Now, my aim is to explore whether the Bible's teaching about temptation, sin, and desire maps onto the experience of same-sex attraction. What does the Bible have to say about the pre-behavioral components of our sin? Can someone feel an attraction for something sinful without the attraction itself becoming sinful? Can a person experience ongoing desire and inclination for sexual sin without those desires and inclinations themselves becoming sinful? You see the questions we're asking here. <clears throat> there are those who argue that our sexual desires and attractions and inclinations are of no moral consequence so long as we do not act on them. And on this basis, they would argue that homosexual orientation and even same-sex sexual attraction they're, they're, they treat those things as benign, harmless elements of human personality. But is this really what the Bible teaches? So 
I, I just want to say at the outset, as I'm asking these questions, it may seem like we're splitting hairs here or asking how many angels can dance on the head of a, a pin, but we're not. Um, we're, we're discussing an issue with immediate practical and pastoral implications for people. How we answer these questions has a profound impact on how we invite gay or lesbian sinners to come to Christ. And it will tell us how we are going to tell them what faithfulness looks like once they come to Christ. Our answer to that question is going to define how they're faithful in their walk with Jesus. And I would argue that the, the way that we answer these questions is going to inform how opposite sex attracted people should pursue a faithful walk with Jesus. Because we're actually all in the same boat in, in, in a big way here. And so the stakes are high and we, and we need to get this right. So for the rest of the time, I'm going to ask and answer four questions. I'm going to tell you the questions up front and then we're just going to walk through them. First question is this, what makes desire into an orientation? What makes desire into an orientation? Second, what makes desire sinful? Third, what makes Jesus' temptations innocent? Fourth, what makes our temptation sinful? So I'm going to ask and answer all four of those questions. And we're going to get to the bottom of, is same-sex attraction sinful? How, how are we supposed to think about this? Okay, so first question, what makes desire into an orientation? Now, before we can even answer this question, we have to define our terms. In these discussions, I find that people are throwing around words and they've never even actually thought through what they mean by the words that they're using. They're kind of uh, speaking with words and they're assuming meanings. So let's get on the same page in, in defining our terms here. The most critical term being sexual orientation. What do people mean when they use that term, sexual orientation? This is an important question because some people are telling us that the Bible's message on homosexuality is irrelevant because the biblical writers didn't know anything about sexual orientation. I already mentioned that in the previous session, but a lot of writers and scholars are saying, you know, the biblical writers, they didn't know anything about sexual orientation. Well, um, to say that presumes a certain definition of sexual orientation. And so we need to figure out what this, this means. But they argue that it's a modern concept and that it gives us insight into the nature of things. And since the biblical writers didn't know about that concept, what they say about homosexuality isn't really relevant to us. And I mentioned Matthew Vines earlier. I'll just read you a little clip from his book, God and the Gay Christian. He said it this way. He said, the bottom line is this. The Bible doesn't directly address the issue of same-sex orientation or the expression of that orientation. While its six references to same-sex behavior are negative, the concept of same-sex behavior in the Bible is sexual excess, not sexual orientation. So for, for Vines, the Bible doesn't condemn homosexual practices um, and it doesn't condemn uh, same-sex orientation because it doesn't even know of, of that. It doesn't condemn those homosexual practices that are an overflow of that orientation. And so the Bible doesn't even speak to those who might have those practices in a, in a relationship of loving commitment between two same-sex people. The Bible condemns only displays of homosexual practice that are based on excessive lust. So the Bible doesn't really weigh in on how we're to think about sexual orienta orientation as such. So, but here, here's the question here, and I, I am winding up to the definition. 
But is it true that the Bible knows nothing of the concept of sexual orientation? Well, in order for us to get to the bottom of this, we have to understand what people mean by that phrase. And um, I want to use a definition of this term that is used by the American Psychological Association, the APA. Okay? They've defined the term in a way that is commonly recognized. Okay? So this will be our point of departure. I'm not saying that they're right in what they teach or say about all of this. I'm just telling you a common definition of this term so that we'll have before us what people mean when they say this. Okay, that's, that's all I'm doing. <clears throat> they say this, sexual orientation refers to an enduring pattern of emotional, romantic, and or sexual attractions to men, women, or both sexes. Sexual orientation also refers to a person's sense of identity based on those attractions, related behaviors, and membership in a community of others who share those attractions. So, first of all, sexual orientation is an enduring pattern of attractions. The attractions are emotional, um, romantic, and sexual. Okay, so the first thing is it's an enduring pattern of attractions. Keystone of that is the, the sexual attraction part. Okay, it's also sexual orientation is also an identity category. Okay, how a person thinks about who they are based on those attractions. So they define themselves and their personhood based on what their sexual attractions are. So that's how the APA is defining this. <clears throat> so according to this common way that people use the term, sexual orientation is really just referring to a person's sexual attraction to men, women, or to both sexes. So you can have a homosexual attraction, heterosexual attraction, or a bisexual one. And it can't be a passing attraction. It has to be an enduring pattern of attraction, okay? And there are emotional elements that are including in the, included in that, but the defining feature is the sexual element. So sexual orientation may be more than sexual attraction, but it's not less than sexual attraction. Are you following me here? So um, when those authorities like the APA define orientation as an enduring pattern of sexual attraction, it uses that term attraction basically as a synonym for desire. If you're experiencing an attraction to the same sex, you're experiencing a desire for the, for the same sex. <clears throat> and so I can give you example after example where I'm going to skip actually reading some of these to you, but just in the literature, secular literature, where um, um, scholars are defining attraction in terms of desire. Okay, so it's an enduring pattern, uh, an orientation is an enduring pattern of sexual desire for the same sex, the opposite sex, or both sexes. That's what it is. So that's how the terms are used. That's how it's defined by, by the authorities. Now, so is it, if this is the case, is it true that the Bible knows nothing of sexual orientation, as some of the critics claim? If sexual orientation is the enduring pattern of sexual des desire, in one direction or the other. Does the Bible say anything about sexual desire? Is the Bible's teaching changed simply because the sexual desire is enduring in one direction or the other? No. If it speaks to our sexual desires, it speaks to all of them, whether they're passing or enduring, okay? So if orientation refers to enduring experiences of different kinds of desire, of course the Bible addresses that. 
So the claim that the Bible doesn't address sexual orientation is just wrong on its face if you know what people mean by orientation. It's just the experience of certain set of patterns of desire. That's all that it is. So to say that the Bible doesn't speak to orientation is the same thing as saying that it doesn't speak to our desires. And that's not true. The Bible clearly and repeatedly teaches us about our sexual desires. If you can't see that in the Bible, we're not reading the same Bible. And we're going to get into this more clearly here in, in a minute. So, so here's the question. What makes sexual desire into an orientation? Okay, that was the question we started with. The fact that it's enduring and it's a pattern over time. That's all people mean by that. You have a certain set of sexual desires in a certain direction over time. APA says like six to nine months, then that indicates an orientation. That's all that the word means, okay? Now, you can ask, we can talk more about this later if you want. Those same authorities, they don't know why people have it. The, the, the theories for why people have it divide between nature and nurture. But if, the, there's no one single scientific theory that explains it, okay? Some people say nature, some say nurture. And um, so there's theories out there, but there's no definitive evidence of it. Okay, so what makes desire into an orientation? Just the fact that it's an enduring thing. Okay, Qu next question, second question. What makes desire sinful? <coughs> Look in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 5 in verses 27 to 28. Matthew chapter 5, 27 and 28. You know these words from Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now we're familiar with this passage. It's clear that Jesus is prohibiting not merely sinful sexual deeds, but also the stuff that's going on in your heart that precedes those deeds. But what is going on in the heart that produces sinful sexual deeds? Well, most of your English translations use the word lust. Here, in verse 28, and Jesus is saying clearly that lust is tantamount to adultery. It's not just adultery that's sinful, it's the lust that comes before the adultery that's sinful. Do you see that? Now, what many people miss is that the word translated as lust is simply the Greek word for desire. I'm going to give you one Greek word, hopefully all weekend. It's this Greek word, epithumia. That's the noun form for desire in Greek, epithumia. There's a noun form, epithumeo, but just the, 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 the noun form's fine, epithumia. <clears throat> this is just the Greek word for desire, which means, that means that both the doing of the adultery and the desiring of adultery is sinful. Is everybody still tracking with me here? Okay. But the question that people often have at this point is, how do I know the difference between a sinful sexual desire and a harmless sexual desire. Now this is a good question. What is the difference between a morally harmless desire and a lustful desire? Why is it the, that the English translators translated as lust instead of just desire? Why do they put that negative connotation on it? Well some people wonder if the issue has to do with the intensity of the desire. That's how some people think, okay, if you have a, a, a desire that's really, really intense, that's what makes it sinful. And so for them, on that definition, a guy who has a slight and passing sexual desire for another man's wife, that's not a sin. Okay? 
It's only a high level of sexual desire that Jesus identifies as sinful lust. Other people wonder if the issue is the chosenness of the desire. On that view, what makes the desire sinful is only when somebody chooses to feel the desire, say, to look at another man's wife, to desire them. Only then would it be sinful if he chose to do it. But if it just sort of came up in your brain without choosing it, you just sort of started feeling it, that's not sinful. The question is, are those distinctions biblical? Is the intensity of the desire or the chosenness of the desire, are those the issue? Well, um, think about the intensity of the desire for, for just a second. Is it okay, really, biblically, according to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, for a man to desire another man's wife just so long as it's a low-grade desire? Try that out on your spouse and see. Hey, sweetie, I have a low-grade sexual desire for so-and-so over here. But don't worry, I don't think about it that much. Uh, you know that's not going to work. You know that's not okay with your wife. It's not okay with God. Any amount of your sexual desire directed towards someone not your spouse, no matter how slight it is, is a sin. The intensity of the desire doesn't determine its sinfulness. What about the chosenness of the desire? Is, is the chosenness what makes it sinful? People will often observe um, that Jesus says, whoever looks at her in order to lust for her. In other words, there seems to be some sort of intentionality here. And since the person chooses to feel the desire for another man's wife, that's what makes it sinful. The problem with that is that it misses the point that Jesus is teaching us about the law. Did you catch that? You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. What's Jesus quoting there? The seventh commandment. Isn't that what he says? Isn't that what the seventh commandment says in Deuteronomy, Exodus 20? You sh you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. So Jesus is telling us, I'm teaching you about the Ten Commandments. Okay? <clears throat> People miss this. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Jesus is not introducing an innovation about the relationship between desire and deed in Matthew 5. He's merely trying to teach us what the Ten, ten Commandments already say and have always said. He's trying to connect the seventh commandment to the tenth commandment. You know what the seventh commandment is? You shall not commit adultery. You know what the ten commandment, tenth commandment says? You shall not desire your neighbor's wife. That's the tenth commandment. Don't do adultery. Don't desire adultery. Jesus is not innovating. He's just the master law teacher. That's what he's doing here. The law already teaches that it's not just the, de the, the deed, but the desire that gives birth to the deed. That's the issue. And in the 10th commandment, it's, it's, it's not, if you look at the 10th commandment, does it say anything about the chosenness of the desire? It doesn't. The 10th commandment is an absolute prohibition. Don't desire your neighbor's wife. You don't desire her sexually. You don't do that. So it's any desire for adultery, chosen or otherwise, that's prohibited. The morally significant difference between lustful desire and harmless desire is neither the intensity of the desire nor our own personal sense of its chosenness. So what's the difference? 
The difference is in the object of the desire. Now, I'm, we're, ta- we're leading up to make a statement about homosexuality, but right now I'm trying to get you to think about the morality of the own, your, your own experience of your own desires. How do you know when they're going the wrong way? They're going in a sinful way. It's the object of the desire, not the intensity, not that that's irrelevant, and not the chosenness, even though that's, those are relevant moral considerations. They're not the definitive one. It's the object of the desire. So desire is not a neutral term. It always has an object. You desire. You can desire good things or you can desire bad things. If you desire good things, the desire itself is good. If you desire bad things, the desire itself is evil. No matter what degree and then no matter whether you remember choosing it or not. Um, I could give you examples of this, but the word desire, just the way it's used in the New Testament, it, it, it's, it, it's used sometimes positively. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, verse 17, many prophets and righteous men desired, epithumeo, to see what you see, and they did not see it. Prophets and righteous men desired to see the messianic kingdom. They were desiring a good thing. And Jesus was saying that was good. 1 Timothy 3.1 If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. Same word, desire. But what's the difference? What the person is desiring is a good thing, okay? But when you look at the Ten Commandments, say the Tenth Commandment, you shall not desire your neighbor's wife, is that a good thing or a bad thing to desire? It's bad because it's prohibited, right? So that's why this one term is rendered desire in some texts and lust in others. If you desire something good, then the desire itself is good. If you desire something evil, then the desire itself is evil and it's translated as lust. Same word is translated as lust in those contexts. Clearly, having a sexual relationship with another man's wife is wrong. So to desire, to commit that deed is also wrong. And that's why Jesus prohibits even the desire to commit adultery. The law is not prohibiting all desire. Only those desires that have a forbidden object. That's the, that's the key. Even though Jesus in Matthew 5 is addressing the issue of adultery in particular, he has provided for us a standard by which we might evaluate all sexual desires. If you desire sex outside of the marriage covenant, that desire is sinful, regardless of its intensity and regardless of its chosenness. Jesus is giving us a standard by which to evaluate all sexual desire, heterosexual, homosexual, or otherwise. If we want to understand our own desires, we have to know the objects of our desires. What God has said about the objects of our desires. What are our desires and attractions aimed at? The only sex desire that glorifies God is the desire that's ordered to the covenant of marriage. When sexual attraction or desire fixes on any kind of non-marital activity, it falls short of the glory of God and is by definition sinful. That principle applies to all of our desires, including opposite sex and same-sex desire that people may experience. The difference is that opposite sex desire can have the covenant of marriage as its object and can be good, right? But same-sex desire can never have the covenant of marriage as its object, ever. And it can never be good. You see what I'm saying here? 
one of the common objections to the argument that I've made to you so far is that this account of things really confuses temptation with sinful desire. And the objection goes something like this. The Bible teaches that it's not a sin to be tempted. But you make even the temptation to lust a sin. Are you not saying that all temptation is sin, if that's what you're teaching us right now? Wasn't Jesus tempted like us, yet without sin? Hebrews 4.15. How can you say that temptation equals sin? That's kind of usually how the objection comes out at this point. The short answer to that question is that I don't believe that all temptation equals sin. I don't believe that. Plainly, Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned. So unless we want to imply that Jesus was a sinner, we have to affirm that not all temptation equals sin. But in saying this, we must be careful to define what we mean by temptation and precisely what our temptation has in common with Jesus's. Too often we're guilty of projecting our own sinful experiences back onto Jesus. But that's backwards. We should not make our sinful experience of temptation the measure of Jesus's sinless experience of temptation. On the contrary, Jesus' sinless experience of temptation should be the measure of our experience. And that leads to the third question. What makes desire into an orientation? What makes desire sinful? Third question, what makes Jesus' temptation innocent? Yes, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, but his experience of temptation was not identical to ours. This is the necessary consequence of recognizing that Jesus was perfect, sinlessly perfect, which sometimes theologians call Christ's impeccability. And that teaching is anticipated in Hebrews chapter 4 in verse 15. If you look at Hebrews 4.15, it says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now, there's two important observations to make about this text for, for our purposes. First, that word for temptation is likely a specific reference to the redemptive sufferings of Christ. I won't belabor the point, but you can look. The same word appears in Hebrews 2.18. It's clearly the testing that's going on here has to do with his redemptive sufferings on our behalf. And so that's what's going on in Hebrews 4.15. Second thing to note, though, is that the key is that Jesus' suffering and temptation is without sin. There was no aspect of Jesus' temptation that ever involved sin on his part. Now think about that for a minute. He had no desires that predisposed him to sin. His response to external pressures never resulted in an evil thought or attraction. And of course, he never engaged in any sinful response to the suffering <clears throat> that he faced. From top to bottom, he was perfect, innocent, wholesome, and good in the face of every temptation. That means that Jesus' experience of temptation was never internalized towards a desire for evil. Ever. Think about that. His attractions, whatever they were, were never directed towards something his father had prohibited to him. Jesus' impeccability means that he not merely never sinned, but that it was it was not possible for him to sin. Augustine said it this way, God forbid that we should ever say that he was able to sin. That's not our experience of temptation. We experience a level of internalization that Jesus' impeccability never allowed. Yes, 
Jesus faced the same sorts of external pressures to sin. No, those pressures never had a landing pad in his heart. Nor did they have a launching pad from his heart. In the face of withering satanic attacks, he only always desired his Father's will. The words without sin in Hebrews 4.15 indicate that while Jesus faced temptations, like we do, his experience of those temptations was quite different from ours in this sense. It was always sinless. Jesus' perfection in that regard has provoked some people to wonder whether his experience of temptation can ever be as intense as what you and I experience. Can he really have known our weakness when he himself was not capable of sinning? That question points us to one of the glorious ironies of Jesus' sinless nature. It did not lessen his experience of temptation. It only intensified it. Leon Morris said it this way. He says, the man who yields to a particular temptation has not yet felt its full power. He has given in while the temptation has yet something in reserve. Only the man who does not yield to a temptation who as regard to that particular temptation is sinless, knows the full extent of that temptation. Which means you and I don't even know the full extent of temptation. Only Jesus does. We always give in before the full measure is put on us. Jesus never gave in. He saw it through all the way to the end. For, fourth question. So what makes desire into an orientation? What makes desire sinful? What makes Jesus' temptation innocent? The fact that it was always without sin. Always, inside and outside. Last question, what makes our temptation sinful? <clears throat> All temptation has at least two defining elements. There's a trial and there's an enticement to sin. The trial is an experience of testing that often includes suffering or a sense of deprivation. The enticement is an allurement to relieve suffering or deprivation through sinful means. Okay, so a trial and enticement. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, both of those elements were there. Um, Jesus' lack of food was a trial that made him experience physical hunger. Satan offers Jesus bread in order to entice Jesus to relieve that condition through sinful means. Although trial and enticement can be distinguished conceptually, they can't always be separated experientially. Sometimes they, they come together. In either case, temptation always includes both elements, trial and enticement. One distinguishing mark of Jesus' experience of temptation is that the enticement to sin never emerged from his own nature. And that's just the difference between Jesus and us. Jesus had no sin nature. There was nothing in his sinless nature that could have produced a desire for evil. Jesus could experience trials in the same way that we do, but he never experienced enticement to evil from the inside. He could get it from the outside, from the devil, but it never came from his own heart. Is that the way we experience our temptations? No. Last text, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own desire. Guess what the word is? Epithumia. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The temptation, and each one is tempted here, is explicitly tied to the sinner's inclination. Which means it's a broken desire. It's enticing the sinner away from faithfulness. Okay? 
So the desire itself is sinful because its object is sinful in this text, okay? The text is saying that God can't be tempted by evil, but that sinners obviously are tempted by evil. How are we tempted by evil in a way that God isn't? Verse 14 gives the answer. We face temptations that arise from our own desire. In contrast, Jesus never faced temptations arising from his own sinful desire because he didn't have that. As God, he could not and cannot be tempted by evil in that way. He can be tempted from the outside by the devil, but he can't be tempted from the inside as if there's some sin to spring up from him. It's not there. It had no landing pad in his heart. It had no launching pad from his heart. That's not the true of us. We're often carried away by our own desires, as James describes it. Now, if all that is true, what does that mean for us to be tempted while not sinning? After all, the Apostle Paul says that God always provides the way of escape when we're tempted. Well, our experience of temptation can have an external source or an internal source. Jesus faced, it, faced external testing just like we do. Satan set before Jesus temptations, but those temptations never emerged from his own nature. Nor did he ever experience the sin snowball that we do. Satan never laid a finger on Jesus' holy resolve to do all his Father's holy will. Jesus experienced temptation in that external sense, but the temptations never connected with him. Biblically speaking, that's the moral space between temptation and sin. As long as the temptation doesn't come from your own sinful nature, the mere experience of an external temptation is not sinful. Jesus wasn't sinning when Satan was tempting him. But sin is conceived when we begin to to desire the evil. That's where sin is conceived. And that can come up from within us, but not within Jesus. So think about how this pattern plays out in our experience. Perhaps Satan would set before man an image of an attractive married woman. He might see her and apprehend that she's beautiful, but the moment that apprehension turns into a sexual attraction, it's sin within his heart. Whether he chose it or not, whether it's intense or not, it has moved from an external temptation to an internal attraction that's unwholesome and forbidden by Scripture. Sinners leap over that space from apprehension of beauty to lustful desire for beauty all the time without even thinking about it. It's easy and natural to us because we're sinners, but Jesus never did it, ever. That aspect of Jesus' perfection, it, it ought to make us worship him more when we think about it because Jesus always looked at every woman and every man in a way that was without sin. He never experienced an untoward desire for any person He was able to sit with the woman at the well, for example, without the turmoil of disordered lusts that he ought not be feeling. When the disciples asked Jesus if he was hungry, he said, he said that, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. No physical urge ever trumped his desire to do his father's will. He just saw her, loved her, and ministered to her without the sinful garbage that you and I have to reckon with. Maybe she was beautiful. Maybe there was a bait to lust there. She had already made herself sexually available to at least five different men. And he was alone with her. But there was no place for that temptation to land in Jesus' heart. He was perfect. He always got it right, both in his heart and in his deeds. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I want you to think about this. Because people read, he is tempted in every way that we are. And then they think about the ways that they're tempted. And they read that onto Jesus. 
That's the wrong way to read this. He's tempted in every way as we are, yet, what? Without sin. He didn't do sin and he never desired sin. That's different than us because oftentimes our temptations arise from our own hearts with no external stimuli at all. It just bubbles up naturally to us. And guess what? We're born that way. We are born that way. You don't have to be taught to sin because you are born a sinner. We believe in original sin. We had a bunch of reformed people in here. We believe in total depravity. We are that way from birth. And all manner of evil wells up from our hearts by nature. Which means just because something feels natural doesn't mean it's right. If you feel an attraction or a desire for something that God has forbidden and it feels natural to you, the fact that it feels natural to you doesn't make it right. Even if you felt it from birth, the chosenness of the desire or the intensity of desire, it's not the issue. We've done a disservice, I believe. Some Christians have because they've made the whole thing about you have to choose to feel this. No, you don't. We have all kinds of desires that we don't choose to feel that are wrong. And they're nevertheless sinful. How does all this map onto the issue of same-sex orientation? What does it mean? Insofar as same-sex orientation designates the experience of a sexual desire for a person of the same sex, yes, sexual orientation, same-sex sexual orientation is sinful. If it means desiring something God's forbidden, that's sinful. Insofar as same-sex orientation indicates emotional attractions that brim with erotic possibility, yes, those attractions too are sinful. Insofar as sexual orientation designates an identity, that identity too is a sinful fiction that contradicts God's purposes for His creation. If all that's true, I know I'm short on time, let me say just three final things. If all that's true, let me give you just three implications quickly. To call same-sex attraction sinful does not make gay people less like the rest of us. On the contrary, it makes them, it recognizes that they are more like the rest of us. We are not singling out gay people as if their experience is somehow more repugnant than everybody else's experience of living with sinful, a sinful nature. All of us bear the marks of our connection to Adam. All of us are crooked deep down. All of us have thoughts and inclinations and attitudes and the like that are deeply contrary to God's intention for us. And all of us need a renewal from the inside out that can only come from the grace of Christ. I am not saying that all sins are equal. I am saying that all sins have a common source. It's our connection to Adam, and we all have that. Second thing, these truths, if that's true, that ought to inform how brothers and sisters in Jesus who experience same-sex attraction how they wage war against that attraction. Sin is not merely what we do, it is who we are in the flesh. As so many of our confessions have it, we are sinners by nature and by choice. All of us are born with an orientation towards sin in some variety. The ongoing experience of same-sex sexual attraction is but one manifestation 
of our common experience of indwelling sin. And indeed, the mind, it's, it's a manifestation of the mindset on the flesh, Romans 8. For that reason, the Bible teaches us to war both against the root and the fruit of sin. In this case, same-sex attraction is the root and same-sex behavior is the fruit. The Spirit of God aims to, aims to transform, transform both. That means we've got to aim all the means of grace, not only at our deeds but at our desires. Why are you making this point, Denny? Because there are people telling you today that same-sex attraction is blessed by God. That there are aspects of homosexuality that are going to be celebrated in the new creation. That's what's happening right now. We'll be chased in our deeds, but in our heart, God blesses these same-sex attra same attraction. Last thing. This truth ought to strengthen our love and compassion for brothers and sisters who experience same-sex attraction. For many of them, that same-sex attraction is not something that they have experienced. It's something they've experienced for as long as they can remember. They don't know where it came from or why. Their attractions are what they are, even though they may be quite unwelcome. Now, there are some people who are walking in open rebellion, and they're, they're just doing that. But there are some people who are in the churches who are experiencing these things, and they don't want them. And they don't know how to make them go away. But they want to follow Jesus. We need to be able to tell them how to do that. Some people, when they come to Christ, they may experience a miraculous deliverance from same-sex attraction. But most don't. They just don't. Um, over time, they have to be sanctified like the rest of us. And it doesn't happen presto all at once. And we've got to be able to be there with them and to strengthen their hands for the fight. Which means we've got to tell them that God is aiming at their desires and their deeds. Just like everybody else. I don't want them to feel like they're different from everybody. I want them to feel like they're in the same boat as the rest of us. Their sanctification happens on the same terms as the rest of us. Right? That's how it happens. There is so much more to say. And I don't have time to say it. So we will save it for the Q&A and for discussions tomorrow, okay? Let me pray. Father, thank you for all these that have gathered tonight. Thank you for their diligence to be here, for their love for the Scripture, their love for you. Lord, use your word, use these instructions to help us to think biblically about same-sex attraction, sexual sin, our own desires, other people's desires that are trying to sort through them. Lord, give us clarity so that we can be holy ourselves and so that we can help others. Keep us humble. Make us fruitful, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please join me in thanking our speaker for this evening? Thank you, Danny. Thank you. blessed time for us, a blessed opportunity, and uh, wonderful for us to do this and get to experience this together. Uh, please take note of what's on the schedule for tomorrow. There are other areas that are related to this that are different, that we need to be challenged in, that we need to grow in, in terms of our understanding. So please make an effort to, to return and to, uh, and, and to be here for that in the morning, those three sessions. Uh, we have the Q&A tomorrow afternoon after lunch. If you have a burning question, 
I'm confident that I will see you here tomorrow afternoon. If you don't have a burning question, you need to know that this is why God has saved you into a community of people, because there's someone else here. You know, we have some really smart people in this room. There's somebody else here who has a question that they're going to ask that you haven't considered and that you need to consider. And you're going to miss that if you're not here tomorrow afternoon. So please, please be with us for that. Uh, show up early, not too early, but a few minutes early. Have some coffee before the, the first session. And we look forward to, Lord willing, seeing you tomorrow. So thanks for joining us tonight.